0: All right, Uh, last week uh, we got down to uh, chapter 8, roughly verse uh, 18 through 22 is where we kind of landed, and that's where we want to start uh, tonight. Just a real quick recap, the first part of chapter 8 is where Gideon is going after the Midianites, and we talked a little bit about uh, revenge, and that's kind of where we're uh, going to get into a little bit tonight. So let's just jump right into the text. Verses 18 through 21 is what we talked about at the end of our study where uh, he tells his son to rise up and kill and his son refuses to do so because he was afraid because of his youth. And so Ziba and Zalmunna said, do it yourself for as a man is so is his strength. So it says that Gideon arose and killed both of them, took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks there in verses 18 through 21. We kind of talked about this, but I wanted to revisit it at the outset of our study. Why uh, Why does Gideon act this way? Why does he choose to do this? We read those verses last week, but what was his rationale? And it could be a couple of things. So uh, we, there's something to be said for his son and the idea of being a king. We're going to talk a lot about uh, his son's name. Who's, what's his son's name? Well, at least the one that's known.
1: Abimelech.
0: Abimelech. So we're going to talk about Abimelech quite a bit tonight. And we'll try to get through his entire life to the time that he dies. Um, I put up on the screen that it seems as if he's uh, enacting... If you're Barney Five, it's revenge, right? But another episode. Revenge uh, for killing Gideon's brothers, which is outlined a little bit earlier in the text. And uh, this is just a question mark we'll put next to this, and we'll come back and revisit this in just a second. But I want to go ahead and read verses 22 through 28. Well, not read it. But someone summarized 22 through 28 for us. How how do the people respond to Gideon? They wanted to make him
1: king over
0: them. Right. They say you should be our king. You should be the ruler over us. And talk about the ephod. What's the ephod? This breastplate, right, which they would have been familiar with because of what we find in the first couple of books of the Old Testament, where it outlines this breastplate with the different stones in it, including two special stones that were to provide uh, guidance by way of God's direction to the people, the Urim and the Thummim, right? Um, which is an interesting concept in and of itself. What was the problem with the ephod? And you're, well, you're welcome to quote exactly from verse 27 or just use your own words, but what, what ended up happening? It became like an idol unto them. The New King James uses the word in verse 27. It became a snare to them. And I wanted to just very quickly go back to the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, chapter 7 verse 16. Because this was an interesting cross reference. At least uh, I thought. Uh, also you shall destroy all the peoples. And this is what Brother Brian took us through uh, a few months ago. Uh, whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Destroy them all. Deuteronomy 7, 16. Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would become or be a snare to you. might have a different word than snare? I think most of us have the word snare there. I didn't check every version. But. So this is exactly what's happening here. Uh, the idea of an ephod was something that was... Central to the religion of the people of God. It's something that in and of itself was not wrong because God created it and put it in place, but they have now taken it, and it reminds me a lot of the book of Romans where you worship the creation rather than you do the creator. You're, now you're worshiping an idol, an instrument, a thing, instead of putting the focus on where it needs to be. To Gideon's credit, he rejects the idea of being a king. However, uh, this snare, does Gideon bear some fault for that? And, I, and that, uh, there's some questions that I don't have all the answers to tonight. And I, 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 I've said in private conversations to a handful of you that I've struggled with Gideon, and I struggle with Jephthah, and I struggle with Samson uh, in identifying their strengths and weaknesses. But is Gideon, yes, Brother Mitch. I think
2: that, I mean, Gideon, like all of us, has his flaws. And uh, it seems here that part of that flaw, you know, is this, you know, he wanted to accumulate all this gold from from his victory. Mm -hmm. And whether he did that and created the ephod as a reminder of, like, you know, this great victory that they had over the Mm -hmm. Midianites, um, or whether that was done with, you know, other more impure motives, regardless. Um, when, you, when you're working with a people that's not following after God's law, anything could become that snare. And Absolutely. So, um, that's a very good way of putting it. And that
0: coincides with the way that I was thinking, not that the way that I'm thinking is correct. Uh, but that was the, the drive that I was kind of getting after. Other thoughts on this concept of Gideon bearing responsibility? Brother Brian and Brother Alan. Uh, go with those two, then
2: we'll move a little bit further. I just think it's interesting, and, and again, I'm always so careful, as you mentioned, to draw conclusions. But I do think it's interesting, the bookends uh, of Gideon's life, that in the beginning, when he's called by God, one of the first things he's called to do is to tear down that altar of Baal. And so he tears down that altar by night, and now we see here at the end of his life, there's this, this setting up of an item that turns into an altar. Very good. Um, and so lots of things you can draw from that, if only to notice that there are certainly highs and lows, and even as Mitch said... Uh, yeah, faithfulness one minute does not guarantee faithfulness later on. Good.
1: This is, I think, one of one of an early example that we're going to see a lot as we move through it's the Old Testament history, where you see the writers, some here in Judges, a lot, once you get into Samuel and Kings, mm-hmm. these individuals that look like, is this the one, maybe, that, that moses talked about or that the the star out of jake you know they do an amazing thing and you see the writer kind of intentionally i think saying but he also did this really directing that this is not the one that's coming he had a great victory he did great things for god's people but he's not that guy and you'll see that with gideon those others you mentioned saul david solomon always reminding us there's still someone else coming that's really the one to be looking for. Excellent. I think this is kind of one of those examples here, too. Very good.
0: Along with that, it kind of goes as a yet another of the, of the four points that I made Sunday evening when I was talking about the authenticity of Scripture. One of the marks of authenticity is the fact that, as Alan points out, these men write about their own faults. Or their contemporaries write about their own faults. This is not a book of perfect men and perfect women. It's a book of unperfect men and unperfect women who write about that. Sometimes in the first person. Or talking about themselves in the, in the third person, but being first person. Uh, what happens? Gideon ends up dying, and then what happens? In, in not, don't get into chapter 9 yet, but what happens at the tail end of chapter 8? As soon as he was out of the
1: picture. Just
0: as soon as that happened, they went away. Verse 33, perfect. As soon as Gideon was dead, verse 33, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal bareth their God. So uh, I think that phrase that, that Jonathan kind of really put a laser on is the important one, as soon as Gideon was dead. And we can talk about playing the harlot and you know, the figurative side of that, the more literal side of that. Either way, this is a very ugly picture of a group of people who, like it goes back to the cycle that we've talked about. And we'll look at that chart here in just a second or so. I think I put it up on the screen for tonight. Uh, where, again, we see this round and round. But and, and one of the key events is when the judge dies. When that individual dies, then the people forget about it all righteousness and doing what is good. Um, We hear about uh, Gideon in the New Testament. So here's an easy question. Where in the New Testament do we hear about him? Hebrews 11 11, verse 32, right? So that goes back to what Brother Mitch pointed out, what Alan pointed out, and what Brother Brian pointed out. And that is, um, even in spite of our faults... With God's grace and our continual repentance, we're going to talk about repentance tonight as opposed to recognition, uh, we can still be righteous in God's sight. It's not a matter of, and I mentioned this last week and I think I mentioned it the week before because I think it's a huge, huge point for us. And one that's very comforting is that God doesn't judge us simply based on the one-time weakest moments of our life and say, there, there, there's, I'm going to get you for that. He's very patient, as we've talked about, very merciful, incredibly loving. And that doesn't mean that we can throw caution to the wind and act however we want. That's not what I'm suggesting. Um, But he judges us on the totality of our life and with his mercy mixed into it as well. Uh, Okay. Uh, real quick here, applications. This would have been the end of last week's lesson. Here are the four that I came up with. One, victory always belongs to God. Remember he, the whole idea of taking them from 30,000 down to what, 22 or 22 down to 300, 22 to, 22 to 10,000 to 300 is what it was, right? Uh, getting them down to a point, specifically so you can say that God delivered you. Victory always belongs to God. So when we have a success in life, when you have a success in your career, when you have a success in your family, when, whatever the case may be, God gets the credit for that. He's the one that enables you to be blessed in such fashion. Two, we talked about how Gideon uh, kind of massaged the message to the Ephraimites. And soft answers, humble responses can go a long way as opposed to getting defensive or getting offensive very quickly. We can grow to be bolder in service to God through time. Uh, Gideon started out hiding in the wine press, threshing the wheat or the grain, whatever it was. And now he is, he's going out and he's doing big, bold things. Not necessarily always the right things, but he's grown as a person in his, in his courage, which generally is a good thing. And then fourthly and finally, God doesn't simply judge us by our weakest moments, which is the point that I made a few moments ago. Other big applications from the first eight chapters that I did not come up with. All right, let's go ahead then and just really quickly review. This is what we've been talking about for those of you that are first time either watching or with us tonight. Israel is serving the Lord, but then they get into idolatry. He turns them over usually to a foreign nation. They cry out to the Lord. He raises up some sort of a savior or a judge. They, that delivers them. Then they have peace and they serve the Lord. And then right about here would be a big point of uh, interruption where the Savior-Judge character passes away and then the cycle starts again. So let's get into chapter 9. Chapter 9 is a lengthy chapter, 57 verses. Chapter 10 is only 18 verses. Um, what does Abimelech do in the first Half dozen verses.
2: He makes
0: a play at the throne. Say again?
2: He makes a play for the He throne. makes a play for
0: the throne. I like the way you phrase that. And how does he get to the throne? After all, and, and we I ended with this last uh, Wednesday evening. What does the name Abimelech mean? Son of a king. Son of a king. Now I was reading today, I thought it was really interesting that there's lots of different takes on what that means. Uh, does that mean that I'm going to be the king? Does that mean that I respect my father as a king? There's even someone who has gone so far as to suggest that maybe it's that a play on the words that God is the king king. Um, I, don't, I don't know that I buy into that. But certainly Abimelech wanted power. And I love the way that Mitch pointed out he makes his play for the throne. He does so by doing what? How many brothers does he have? Seventy. 70? So it's a big family. And what does he do to his brothers? Kills them all? Kills them all? No, one. With the exception of one. Whose name was? Jotham. Jotham, right? J-O-T-H-A-M, is that how you spell it? Yes. Okay. Kills them all except Jotham. Jotham was which son? Yes. The youngest. So he was hiding. And he was able to escape um, from this. And Jotham is the one who gives us the way to the the big part of section 1 of chapter 9. So Abimelech kills his brothers. Um, Verse 4, what kind of men does he hire? Depending on what version you're reading from. Worthless? Worthless. Reckless? Reckless. Anybody have a different word? Vain? Vain. Yeah, verse 4 describes these men. There's no... um, trying to gloss over it. It says, the company of men with whom he associated were wicked, reckless, vain, ugly, vile men. And that reminded me, as it probably reminded you of 1 Corinthians 15, uh, where we've got to be careful about the company that we keep because evil company corrupts good morals, as is taught by Paul, um, as we are well aware of here. Now, where does all this take place in the first six verses? Where's the center of activity? Shechem. Shechem, right? What do we know about Shechem that might make this a little bit, I don't know if I'd say bothersome, or surprising, ironic? Do you know, can you remember other things in our previous studies over the last 16 months, 18 months, going back to Genesis, Exodus, where Shechem played a role? And if you can't, that's okay. There's no bonus points tonight. Maybe in the more. days of Jacob. In the days of Jacob, right? And what else happened? What happened with the days of Jacob there? Look at my notes the son here. Son of Shechem, the that Correct. That goes all the way back to chapter 34, 35, if I remember correctly. What happened in Genesis chapter 12? What was the big event in Genesis chapter 12? We usually look at 12, 15, 17, kind of block them together. But who was the key figure in 12? Abraham, Abraham, right? So Abraham, uh, Jacob, both go to Shechem. There's even a reference to this tree, uh, whether or not it's the tree or just a grove of trees. I suppose, I don't know if it's that tree that was still in existence hundreds of years later, where they had come together for these uh, religious or spiritual purposes. And then... Uh, I didn't know this until I really spent some time looking at it today. But when Joshua was speaking those bold words, that I know, because I've been to some of your houses, um, I know that Joshua twenty four fifteen is on the wall in some of your houses. Raise your hand if you have Joshua twenty four fifteen in your house. I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight. So half the congregation has Joshua twenty four. That doesn't mean that you're that. That doesn't mean that you're not cool if you don't have Joshua twenty four fifteen on your, on your walls. I don't think we have it on our walls. We have some other verses. Um, But Joshua 24 is where he says, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I don't care what you guys... Well, he says, I do care what you do. Because you guys choose for yourselves. But for me, my family, we're going to serve the Lord. Shechem is the place where these things are happening. So it just seems to me kind of ironic and kind of sad that these ugly events are transpiring at a place where you should have gone back and been reminded of God's grace. God's power and the commitment that we had otherwise made to God in the past. Just wanted to point that out. I thought that was kind of interesting as well. All right. Let's talk about the story of the trees. And I and I, I don't want to give you too much room to make fun of me because I give you enough room to do that. But I, when I read these eight or nine verses again for the probably the 10th time or so, 20th time, 30th time in my life, I don't know how many times I have read it. Uh, I, I had to really focus in on what is going on with the trees. I, so I was a little bit confused initially, so it took me a few minutes. So someone help me. I've, I've since gotten a little bit more clarity on the trees. But someone summarize what happens in 7 through 15, um, and then give us the moral of the story. So
1: good, for the Jonathan. good and honorable trees, like good and honorable people, know the purpose in that God has for them, and Correct. they'll carry out that purpose and not try to do something otherwise. Um, but worthless uh, trees, worthless people will try to pervert God's intentions and plan for them and and do otherwise. And that's essentially what was going on in this story, in that parable. Very good. And there were a series of a total of four different plants, right? Or four
0: different species. You had... Uh, Uh, fig tree you had olive tree you had a vine and then you had the New King James uses the word bramble anybody have a different word in verse 15 this is Judges 9 verse 15 Uh, I looked at it at a a very modern loose translation he used the word thorn bush which I thought was kind of interesting so something and what happens to a bramble because it's so dead and this is guess what I'm thinking. It chokes out the others. It
1: catches fire
0: easily. It catches fire easily. What were you going to say, Miss Sherry? I said
1: burned
0: up. Burned up. Yeah, that's what I was. That's what I think. And this gives way to the story of the burning that would figuratively take place. And if you've read ahead in Joshua nine, is there a physical fire that happens eventually? Yes, there is a very violent one, and it's a very sad. Story that involves the people in their house or their tower, right? We'll get to that in a few moments. So and I, I think Jonathan did a really good job of giving us a 30-second summary of this. The major point, and as I read through this and considered this, the major point, it seems to me, is the choice of Abimelech as king was a foolish one. You took that which did not make sense and elevated him to a place. Of That's one of the major points of this particular story that is being told here. Um, Who's telling the story? Jotham or Jotham, right? And then Jotham, uh, after this is all done, what does he do? Verse 21. (laughs) He does what you and I would do probably. He, He runs and hides. He flees and he's never heard from again in biblical account. So, which I thought was kind of interesting as well. Just... Sometimes it's just interesting to look at the minor characters in the Bible and study their lives and appreciate what they did uh, or sometimes what they did not do. Uh, let's, any thoughts on the first 21 verses? All right. Let's go ahead to verse 22, uh, and we're going to roll down through... Uh, well, we're going to go through the end of the chapter here. Uh, let's read a little bit, because we've got just a couple extra minutes that I thought we... Yeah, we got a couple minutes here. After Abimelech had reigned over Israel for how many years? Three short years. God sent a spirit of ill will between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. And the men of Shechem or Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. In what way did they deal treacherously with Abimelech in the next five verses or so? They tried to
2: assassinate.
0: Okay. (laughs) That's pretty treacherous, right? So, assassination attempts. Uh, They plagued the roads. Uh, Which would have, I didn't think about this, but when you have tolls, when you have taxes being paid, when you have commerce between these different regions, it's going to hurt the pocketbook of Abimelech's kingdom or of his supposed kingdom, whatever he's got underneath his authority. So all these things are happening. They're really bothering him. Uh, So you have these three, what I would call very short years of peace Followed by a series of great battles and great fights and great uh, all kinds of ugliness that's going to happen. Someone help me out with who Gale is. G A A L. Who is Gale? Or Gaul, depending on how you pronounce it. Son of say, say again? Son of, Son of, okay. And what kind of person is Gale? <clears throat> in a word or a phrase. Big talker. He's a big talker, isn't he? Yeah. I, I, was, I was enjoying reading this today because it was just, I, when I found out I was going to be teaching, I'm always excited about whatever I'm teaching, but when I found out I was teaching judges, I was like, yes, I'm excited about this because stories like this are just, they're just, they're just great. So it says, Gail said, who is Abimelech, verse 28? Who is Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubabal, and is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? If only these people were under my authority, going back to Brian's comment there in verse 29, then I would remove Abimelech. So he said to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. We would probably say today, bring it on, right? That's that's what's happening here. Bring it on. All right. So... uh, the question is, how do the men of Shechem begin to feel towards Mimlet as the story develops, as you roll down the chapter? What's their feelings toward him?
2: Not favorable,
0: not favorable at all, right? And it kind of goes back to some of the things that Mitch pointed out. So he's losing favor with the people, right? And as a leader, as someone who is in power, one of the greatest fears you have is not, maybe is not just assassination, which that's that's very vital to be a fearful love but losing power losing influence Uh, remember that's what the pharisees were so one of the reasons the pharisees were so upset because they were losing their power losing their influence with the more and more jesus came on the scene and their greatest leader is this character this big talker uh by the name of gail or gail um Drop down to, and I know we're going kind of quickly here because we're going to try to wrap up here, but I think we've got some time to read a couple of verses. Drop down to verse uh, 34. Abimelech and all the people who were with him rose by night and lay in wait against Shechem in four companies. When Gale the son of Ebed went out and stood at the entrance of the city gate, Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from lying in wait. And when Gale saw the people, he said to Zebel, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. But Zebul said to him, You see the shadows of the mountains as if they were men. Explain that in verse 36. Because initially that caught me off guard. But what's, he, what, what's happening here? In verse
2: 36. You're crying wolf. You're seeing things that aren't there.
0: Right, right. You've, you're, you're a little bit touched in the head. Or maybe you're, you need to go to the eye doctor, right? Kind of thing. So you're seeing things that are not there. Verse 37 So Gael spoke again and said, See, the people are coming down from the center of the land, and another company is coming from the diviners' terabith tree. Zebul said to them, Where indeed is your mouth now? With which you have said, Who is Abimelech that that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out if you will and fight with them now. So Gael went out, leading the men of Shechem, and fought with Abimelech. Abimelech chased him. He fled from him, and many fell wounded to the very entrance of the gate. Uh, verse 42 It came about the next day that the people went out into the field, and they told Abimelech. So he took his people, divided them into three companies, lay in wait in the field, and he looked out where the people coming out of the city, and he rose against them and attacked them. And Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward, stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, and the other two companies rushed upon all who were in the fields and killed them. So it's a well designed plan, right? Abimelech like fought against the city all that day, took the city, killed the people who were in it, and he demolished the city and sowed it with salt. So, um, I'm, I'm curious what the big talker, that Brian pointed out, is thinking now, right? Things have, chickens have come home to roost, right, kind of thing. Um, what about, and I, we'll we'll take comments on that here in just a second. But what happens in the next four verses, verses forty-six through forty-nine? We won't read those, but what happens there? The,
2: the leaders kind of barricade themselves up, yeah. and then like just burns
0: and yeah. How many people end up dying? I think the text a thousand, right? About a thousand men and women. Verse 49. Um, And they literally start cutting trees and cutting limbs. (laughs) Which, there there are those scenes that I wish that were on DVD or on video to see. Can, Can you imagine all these men carrying these gigantic pieces of timber and then stacking them around this facility and either burning these people alive or smothering them alive? And... So someone say, Judges is a very ugly book to read, and there, and there are aspects of it that are very ugly. Then again, go back to the cycle, whenever God, speaking of which, have you noticed something about tonight? I left it out. No, now we're breathing. Have you noticed something so far in chapter 9? God's not there. Now, he will make an appearance. We'll get to that in just a minute. When you leave God out of your plans in your personal life, your professional life, your uh, congregation's life, things just get really haywire and a mess. And you wonder, how did we get to this place where all these bad things are happening? Because this is ugly. This is sad what's transpiring here. But that's what happens when you allow sin to enter the picture and you don't have... Uh, People guided appropriately um, as was the case here. And then uh, let's read verse 50 through let's read verse 50 and following. Abimelech went to Thebes and he encamped against Thebes and took it. But there was a strong tower in the city and all the men and the women all the people of the city fled there and shut themselves in and they went up to the top of the tower. Well, it's not the first time we've seen this kind of thing happen in, in chapter, right? Here's, here's another tower. So you think, oh, the same thing's going to happen again. They're just going to surround the tower, cut, down the, cut the trees, surround the tower, burn it up, and kill them all. Except, Bimelech came as far as the tower and fought against it, and he drew near the door of the tower to burn it with fire. But a certain woman dropped an upper millstone on a Bimelech's head and crushed his skull. I was talking about this today with someone and, who's not a Christian. And he said, I bet that would have hurt. <laughs> and I said, it probably. And, he, said, and he, he didn't know the Bible story. And you probably know who it is. But, um, and he, he said, did it kill him? And I said, no, it didn't kill him. And um, how did he die? With a sword. Why? He, he didn't want to go down in history... With his tombstone saying killed by a woman because that would be embarrassing because everyone cares what you think about, but people think about you when you're dead like that, right? (laughs) So perspective here, a lot of these things. Um, I know what a millstone is. I know it's used for grinding. Um, My my question is, and this is just – I was thinking about this today, is why is there – anyone? maybe someone knows more about ancient agriculture – I'm not sure why a millstone was in the top of a tower, except that potentially someone drug it up there and put it up there. Maybe this woman drug it up there. I don't know. But either way, it doesn't matter. I'm not suggesting that it matters in order for us to get to heaven. Don't get me wrong. Um, But the fact that she drops it down on his head, crushes his skull,
2: Brother John, I was just going to say that's one strong woman if she could lift a millstone. (laughs)
0: Absolutely. And she's nameless. uh, As as so many times in scriptures, the Bible just says a woman or a man. This isn't just about, more often it's about a woman. Uh, But I'd like to meet this woman. I don't know, maybe I would want to meet her. I don't know. (laughs) But she. No, No, I don't want to meet her. She's mad. I don't want to be, I I want to be the nicest person. Brother Bruce over here. uh, Sure. There's a microphone right behind you. It could have been used as a, as a pulley while building the tower. That's true. That's true. could have been used as a pulley, part of the weights, going, pulling stuff up to the tower. Yeah, that could be. So Again, I'm not suggesting that you need to spend the next three weeks studying how the millstone got up there. I just thought that was interesting. Um, but certainly, uh, a woman killed me. I don't want that said. So his young man thrust him through, and he died. Not the only time... In Old Testament history where someone asks to be killed, is there another occasion where someone asks to be killed by sword? Saul's probably the more, most famous or infamous one, right? Yeah. All right. Um, verse 56, if you like underlining things in your Bibles? the word God, then God. There's the first reference to the Lord. Uh, get down here. Oh, so in addition to figurative fire and judgment, there's a literal fire that's going to happen here as well. But the death of Abimelech provides us with the first mention of the Lord. Then God repaid all the wickedness of Abimelech, which he had done to his father by killing the 70 brothers and all the evil of the men of Shechem. God returned on their own heads, and on them came the curse of Jotham, uh, the son of Drebbel. Another way of saying that, the tree story came true. In full, in its full glory. All right. Um, anything on chapter nine? I know we've gone, brother Mitch here, uh, Jason. I know we went through it kind of quickly.
2: I just was going to say real quick. I think it's interesting. Uh, his his request not to be killed by a woman. Uh, that kind of makes even more sense when you think about chapter five, where mm-hmm. Sisera was killed by a woman, and that was immortalized in song. Absolutely. And, uh, he doesn't want to a song well. written about him, does he? <laughs> But what he didn't, brother Brian over here.
0: But what he didn't get was that where here we are, um, x
2: thousands of years later, we're still talking about him. So he didn't get his wish that way. Well, and kind of what I was going to mention is when you go forward to the death of Uriah, it's actually mm-hmm. mentioned again uh, that this was immortalized. This was remembered Absolutely. by the people, you know. And he says, "Why would you go so close to the wall? Don't you remember Abimelech being killed by the, the millstone?" Stone. And so despite his best efforts to not be immortalized as being killed by a woman, he is remembered by those as being killed by one. Right. We do not get to control what
0: people say about us when we're dead. We do have some control by way of God's grace, but with our obedience on what the Lord says about us when we're dead. And that matters more, right? um, Okay, chapter 10 in four minutes. We'll at least get through part of it here. Uh, there are two judges that are talked about very quickly uh, in in brief succession. Uh, who are those two judges? Tola and Jair. Tola and Jair. Uh, how long was Tola a judge? Twenty-three years. I saw it on the screen. Twenty-three years, which is a, a comparatively long time we know that Gideon how long was he around for or how long was their peace with Gideon 40 so 23 is a fairly long period of time that's you know a good part of one's lifetime when you're only living uh, when you're maybe not living as long as as others who were previous contemporaries and then Jair was a judge who judged Israel for how many years
1: 22.
0: 22 years very little is said about Tola uh, who his uh, tribe was, where he lived, uh, says he, he died and was buried. Uh, Jair has a little more uh, knowledge uh, provided about him or information provided about him. What do we know about Jair, just in short? 30
1: sons,
0: 30 donkeys. 30 sons, 30 donkeys. Presumably, he was doing well. Uh-huh. So that's a way of saying he had, that's a way of, of, of saying my investments are doing well. Right in, in old speak. Um, are they uh, in the words of Dorothy, are they a good judge, or are they a bad judge? We don't know a lot about them, but what can we probably conclude? They're probably yeah, probably decent judges. I, I, I just put seemingly positive judges who did good. The fact that there's nothing negative said about them, seem, and that they, for 45 years that you had peace in the sense that no wars really mentioned, um, uh, is, is a good sign. Now, whether or not there was, someone would say, to fit the cycle, or the, um, maybe there was something that happened, but in between, but it's not recorded for us. Verse six is, again, a transition verse. Uh, toward the evil in Israel, verse six says, "Then or but the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the god of Syria, the gods of Syria, gods of Sidon, gods of Moab, gods of the people of Ammon, gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him." Do you notice anything, and this is one of those things that you kind of you have to be in my mind, what I was looking at, looking for, do you notice something about verse 6 that we haven't seen before? Or is there anything that strikes you? There was only one that was the, was that was the uh, uh, descendant of uh, law. Correct. Right, So we have the descendant of Lot, that we've got to go back and remember all that history from back in Genesis 19 or whatever it was. That's a very good point here. The other thing that I noticed here is just the plethora uh, of gods that we're now serving. And um, I never noticed this until I was reading today. But there are a series of seven gods that are referenced. And we know that seven is this idea of completeness. So these people have not just gone partially over to idolatry. They have gone completely into idolatry. The other thing is you have this proliferation of gods, little g, uh, that you don't see in the earlier references in in chapters 3, 4, and 5 uh, when the people went off and they served uh the Astaras, the Astras and the Baals. Now we've got Syrian gods, Philistine gods, we've got Ammonite gods, we've got all these different gods put together here. Um, and how does God react? Without even reading it, we already know how he's going to react. What's he's but angry. he's angry, and the writer here, whoever he was, describes God's anger in what terms? It because he was hot with anger, or he burned with anger. New King James says it was hot against Israel. Uh, I don't want even cold anger from God. Uh, I definitely don't want hot anger from God, because that's just where he's just he's furious. This is not the first time that God has gotten furious with creation. Genesis chapter six. It repented the Lord. The Old King James says that he had made man on the earth. I mean, he was that upset with mankind because of their disobedience. And that's certainly the case here. Anything else we're going to have to wrap up here uh, in the next 30 seconds? Anything else? Uh, Go ahead and read uh, the rest of chapter 10 for next week and then go ahead and uh, get into Jephthah, which is chapters 11 and 12. And we'll, we'll read from there. Thank you all very much.